So I'm very happy uh, to have uh, Barbara Bogatin here with me today. Uh, Barbara's my good friend, in addition, which is a very lovely perk for me. Barbara and her husband Cliff are both, Cliff Saren, are both good friends of my husband and myself. Um, and Barbara and Cliff and I, for uh, a couple of years now, three years. three years, have been doing workshops together. The first one we did was here at Spirit Rock, we did a day long called Tuning Your Instrument. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's obvious which instrument Barbara has, but she has two instruments. She has her cello, and she has herself. Mm -hmm. I only have one. I have just myself. And you all have one with you today. You may have another one somewhere. And we talked about the idea of uh, tuning, as in practicing, as in getting a, a, a better and better, closer and closer to the sound we'd like to make in the world. And we could see parallels between the sound that we, one would like to make on a musical instrument if one was playing a musical instrument, and the sound that one would make in the largest sense of the word sound that one makes with one's life in the world. That if this is my instrument in the world, and what I am, what my best possibility is, is playing uh, consistent kindness and compassion and goodwill and optimism and patience and appreciation and gratitude and uh, generosity. Those are all the songs that this instrument could play if it were in tune. And I think what we're doing most of the time here on meditation or in the study or the practice that we do of tuning our mind is we're tuning it to what it's keyed to. It's supposed to play that way. And what we are doing in practice is f tuning our instrument, refining it. And uh, the word that Barbara and I find that we share the most when we teach together is the word practice, that we are all practicing all the time. And uh, uh, I think about uh, when I, I love to say to people, don't have to think about how long this practice is going to take you because you don't get anywhere. You go from here to here, and it takes forever. It takes the whole rest of your life. And we, yesterday we talked about Pablo Casals, who was practicing it when he was 95. And someone asked him, Maestro, why are you still practicing? He said, I think I'm making improvements. And you know, I love that. I think that's a great thing. So with that beginning, so Barbara and I and Cliff have taught all in these various places. Uh, Barbara's taught in South Africa with Cliff at a, at a Mind and Life conference. Mindfulness conference. Mindfulness conference. And she'll tell you particularly uh, why she's here today and why these camera people are here today. But it is my great pleasure to introduce my good friend, Barbara Bogatin. Thank you very much. And uh, let me say a special thank you to Sylvia for being part of this project and giving me these opportunities to work with you and to learn from you. It really has been a wonderful uh, exploration that I've been on with you. So I'm very grateful to have these opportunities. Um, so first I'll tell you a little bit about the film crew that you see here. I'm a member of the San Francisco Symphony. I have been for 20 years now. And uh, this year, the symphony has decided to make some short videos of different musicians who have some outside projects outside of the symphony, and they're going to have them on the website and um, the other social media platforms. So uh, they've decided to do one about the music and meditation projects that I've been doing outside of the orchestra and Sylvia very 
graciously uh, agreed to allow them to film the class today as we speak and as I play and talk about practice. So they're going to film the entire two hours, but the video itself is going to be three or four minutes, very short. So just a few snippets of them. I'm sure that they're wonderful editors. And uh, in several months, I guess you'll be able to see it up on the Symphony website. So we're very excited about that project. Um, and thank you all so much for coming today. I'm very, very happy to be here to share my music and my thoughts with you. Uh, so as Sylvia said, I'm going to talk about practice and uh, as that relates to me as a cellist and also as a meditator. But before I talk, I'd like to start with some music. And uh, to do that, I need to introduce my life partner. This is my cello, Giovanni. <laughs> and Giovanni is named after his maker, who was Giovanni Battista Gabrielli. And this instrument was created in Florence, Italy in 1752. And I was lucky enough to find Giovanni in a... Um, instrument dealership shop in Philadelphia in 1986. So Giovanni and I have now been together for 28 years. And like most musicians and their instruments, we have a very close relationship. Uh, it was a couple of decades before Giovanni was created that the composer, Johann Sebastian Bach, created six monumental works for solo cello. And it was really the first time in the history of music that any composer had thought to write music of such complexity and such interest and difficulty for a cello all by itself, because before that the cello had pretty much been a kind of background bass instrument. But Bach felt that there were all kinds of expressive possibilities in this big hunk of wood, and it just needed a genius like himself to bring it out. So I'm going to start by playing uh, the first movement of the first of those six suites, as he called them. It's called Prelude. And each suite has six movements. It start, they all start with the prelude and then five dance movements that were popular at the time. Um, let me just tell you a couple of things to listen for in this prelude. Uh, it's very short. It's just a few minutes long, but it, there's a lot going on in it. And since most people had, in Bach's time had never heard a cello by itself, he's really welcoming them into the sound world of the cello. And um, one of the things that he wants to do is bring out the maximum resonance that's possible on the instrument. We only have four strings, and if you play the strings by themselves without any fingers down, that's the most resonance that the instrument has. So it allows the whole box to act as a kind of sounding box. So he uses a lot of the open strings throughout this piece. And... Um, so in the prelude, it's a kind of very f uh, fantasy-like improvisatory style, although every note is written out exactly as he wants it. And he starts with a particular rhythmical pattern. And this is the pattern he starts with. Uh, and he keeps that same pattern going for the first half of the piece, changing mood, changing harmony. And then the piece comes to a dramatic pause. There's a suddenly silence. And then he starts from a much lower place, a quieter place. And he spends the second half of the piece building to the end where he takes you back to the home key of G major, which is where he starts. And it doesn't really matter if you don't know anything about <laughs> harmony or Baroque music, because really all of Western music, from Bach to Beyonce, uses the same principles of harmonic construction, melodic construction, and the structure. So basically, he starts at one place, he takes you on a journey, and then he works very hard to bring you back home. 
So if you just let the music kind of wash over you, you'll probably have an intuitive understanding of Bach's narrative. Uh, and one more thing, which is when I finish, I would ask you to please not applaud, even if you like it. And uh, we're going to go directly into silence as the music fades into silence. And then Sylvia will give a few instructions about how we're going to spend the next 20 minutes or so meditating in silence together. In a little while, I'm going to let, you, I'm going to let a minute or two or three go by, and then I'll say some things because you'll hear the music long after it stops. And listen as long as you hear it. And even if after the sound waves are finished, you'll hear it. So I'll wait for a while. And then I'll just say minimal things about staying present. And, um, and then we'll sit for maybe 20 minutes more. Okay, so with that in mind, everybody get into a very comfortable seated position. Let's take a nice deep breath together. And welcome to the sound world of Bach's Prelude in G major.
as you sit. See if, if you can just feel a piece of ease that you might feel in your mind. Often, if there's something really uplifting preceding sitting quietly, the mind feels uplifted as if it's had some energy added to it. You don't need to do anything with that energy except stay awake and feel the contentment that my guess is you feel in your mind or your body. You really don't need to do something special. The default position of the mind, if you don't stir it up with thoughts or worries or plans or opinions, is contentment. There is a peace and ease that's natural to the mind and body. To the degree that you can rest in it, I invite you to do that. If in the time that we sit, some thought or concern, something disturbs the peace and ease in your mind or your body, I invite you to take a long, deliberate breath And then breathe out that long, deliberate breath slowly with the intention of returning the mind to a relaxed state. We'll just sit quietly. From time to time, if you remember to smile a little bit, it lifts the mood and keeps you more awake.
We'll have some loving-kindness instructions for the rest of the time that we sit together. As you continue to sit, relax in your seat. If your experience was something like mine, you probably noticed that the room is more profoundly silent than usual. And at the same time, there is a sense of other people in the room. With your eyes closed, see if as you feel yourself breathing, you can imagine the sense of all the other hundred or so people in the room breathing with you. And if you imagine that your mind and your heart, which we often think of as two separate things, are actually one as they are in Asian languages, mind-heart, perhaps you like thinking that the thought in your mind, may all these people in this room with me be happy could radiate out from your whole body, maybe out specifically from your heart. Imagine that you can direct that thought all around you. Like you're a lighthouse or a beacon. Sending that message, be happy. Feel safe. To all the people in the room, people you know, people you don't know. Be strong. Be at ease. Think for a moment of the people in the offices nearby and in the bookstore and up the hill. There are a hundred people in residence for a month, maybe two months. See if you can beam your message of goodwill <coughs> all the way over all this corner of Woodacre. May you feel safe. May you feel happy.
May you feel strong. May you live with ease. Bring into your mind the people that are close to you in your life, your kin, your best beloveds, your siblings, your children, your parents, your partners, your cousins. your aunts and uncles. Your next door neighbors. Wherever they are. You probably notice that as you think of them, you often have a geographic sense of, oh, they're just down the street in San Rafael or they're in New York, or they're in London. But the wishing goes everywhere. Like cyberspace. Mostly what the wishing does is it relaxes your own heart and mind so that it's at ease in the whole world of people you know. And then it's only a very small move in the mind to include all the people you don't know. It's easier because you don't know them. And you can just assume that they're people like you who would like so much to feel safe and happy and strong and at ease. As you continue to breathe and Send your wishes around this whole globe. Think for a moment of the people that you're thinking of with particular intention these days, the people who you have concerns about, and the people you're cheering with for particular reasons. And wish for them all. Either healing or consolation. Or delight and appreciation and the wish that their celebration continue and uplift their life.
whole world is full of people who are ready to celebrate or who need to be consoled. And we ourselves move in and out of those situations as well. Everyone far and near, all beings seen and unseen, may all beings everywhere <coughs> feel safe. and content and be at ease. And may our intentions in coming here and being here together, studying and looking at our own minds, intending to strengthen those habits of mind that spread peace and goodwill both to everyone else at the same time that they keep us at ease. May that intention that brought us here and our dedication and our practice continue to inform our lives through today and as we leave here through the rest of our lives and to everyone that we meet, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. So for some of us, was this, is anybody here having their first time doing a meditation? Nobody, great, you're all very experienced, which is wonderful. So I'm sure that you'll relate to what I'm going to talk about, which is practice. And when I say that, I refer to my cello practice and also to my meditation practice, which for me are really two sides of the same coin. Now, I should tell you, I've been playing the cello since I was eight years old. And um, like many of my colleagues in the San Francisco Symphony, I started at a young age, and we didn't have what you would call a normal childhood. <laughs> After school, we didn't go come home and uh, ride our bikes and play with our friends. We didn't try out for the school play or go out for varsity sports because we had to come home and practice. And if you've ever learned an instrument or maybe had a child who's tried to learn an instrument, you know that practicing is a very big part of that process. You really can't learn an instrument without practicing at least a little bit. 
Not that we always wanted to practice. Sometimes it was our parents who made us practice. I have some colleagues who told me that uh, their parents would get up with them every morning at 6 a.m. to practice an hour before school. That was their first hour of practice. Sometimes it was our teachers who made us practice, and not always in a good way. Sometimes we'd be afraid of their wrath, or worse, their disappointment if we came to a lesson unprepared. And sometimes it was the circumstances that forced us to practice. I remember when I was in elementary school, I used to have to play uh, at the assembly for the whole school. We would all gather in the auditorium, and they'd do the Pledge of Allegiance, and then a sing-along, and the principal said, now Barbara will play a piece for us on her cello. And as you can imagine, at age 11, the idea of embarrassing myself in front of the whole school, that was a pretty good incentive for me to practice. Uh, and then when it came time for college, I went to the Juilliard School, which is my, my kids like to say, my, both kids are in college now, you didn't go to a real college, Mom. <laughs> and that's true. The Juilliard School is a conservatory for music, dance, and drama. And everybody there is uh, there to learn their craft of their instrument or dance or drama. And so the courses that I took were things like 17th century stylistic interpretation of Baroque music and the string quartets of Beethoven. But the most important class that I took, and this was true for all of the instrumentalists there, was our weekly individual private lesson with our major teacher. And to prepare for this lesson, we were told you're expected to practice a minimum of four hours a day, every day. You practice before your homework. You practice before you clean your apartment. You practice before you go to the movies with your friends on the weekends. Practice is first. And there were always competitions, auditions, recitals to practice for. And then when I finished Juilliard and went out into the real world of professional music, there were even more things to practice for, more auditions, more competitions, and the stakes got higher and higher. So I have really been practicing and thinking about practice for a very long time, from age eight up until and including this morning before I came here. Now, people sometimes ask me, you know, after all these years, do you still have to practice the cello? And what I answer is, um, you know, if I didn't touch the cello for 10 years, I could still play it and probably pretty well. I'd probably be the best cellist in this room. <laughs> but if I want to maintain the level that I need to to play in the San Francisco Symphony, then yes, I do still have to practice quite a bit, in fact. So I know that I really want to practice as efficiently and as consciously as I can. So it's something that I have given a lot of thought to over the years. Now, I know that it's possible to learn an instrument or really any skill, whether it's your tennis serve or your golf swing, simply by doing it over and over again. Just the repetition of any activity will get you a long way towards learning it, towards improving. Um, but if you really want to get to the level of professional expertise or some mastery of your skill, you need to learn how to practice in a very conscious way with a great deal of awareness of what you're doing and how to improve. And so in my years of practice, I've thought about what are the elements of practice and how can I deconstruct it in order to really figure out the best way to do it. So I've kind of broken 
cracked this down into four components. And I'll tell you uh, what I think about that, and then I'll give you some very concrete examples of how I practice something on the cello. So the four components or steps of practice that I think of are, first of all, observation. I have to be aware of what I'm doing. How am I using my body? How am I acting with the cello? Um, Is there tension? Is there too much tension? Is there not enough? What kind of sound am I making? Are my hands coordinated? Am I playing in tune? So I need to very carefully see as clearly as I can and hear what is it that I'm doing. And then the next component is analysis. So I need to think about how do I want to do something differently? What's holding me back? Why am I not getting the sound that I hear in my head? Why am I not able to play perfectly coordinated or as fast as I want? Um, And then once I figure out what it is that I'm doing that's holding me back, then I need to make a change. So I have to do to alter something about how I'm playing. And once I've altered it, when I figured out what to do differently and made a change, then I have to repeat my new way of playing many, many times um, so that that new way becomes my habitual way. So I've created a new way of playing, a new habit. And then repeat the process back to the beginning. Observe, what am I doing now? What could I be doing to make it sound better? Make a change and then repeat that process. And so this is how I kind of deconstruct practicing. And those four components are not really four separate things. They're very intertwined and connected. And sometimes that process takes four or five seconds in a particular passage. And I can do it um, at this point without having to really separate them and without having to think about each part, each step along the way. So I'll give you one example. Let's say I have to play a difficult shift getting from one note to another. The cello, it's a kind of, you know, there's several feet of, of uh, string here. And the difference between playing a note right on the nose and a little off, it's a tiny, tiny little distance. So let's say I'm playing this note, E flat. And I want to go an octave higher, exactly an octave higher. I actually have a piece I'm playing, which I'll play the passage for you in a couple of minutes, that uses that very difficult shift. So if I want to practice that before I play it in public, first I'll do it kind of slowly, and I'll try to observe as carefully as I can. How am I doing this? Okay, that time I was a little bit sharp. Let's try it again. Okay, a little flat that time. You could all hear that. Let's try it again. Okay, too sharp that time. Let's try it again. Too flat and too scratchy with the bow. Um, I should mention another important component of the observation is a neutral awareness, neutral non-judgmental awareness, because it's very easy as we're especially learning an instrument, but even uh, at the professional level, once we are at a very high level, we still can start beating up ourselves. Why can't I play that perfectly? I've played this a million times. I should be able to get it every single time. And these thoughts don't help me. In fact, they get in my way. They clutter up my mind, and they waste my practice time. So I work very hard and have over the years to cultivate this neutral, non-judgmental awareness of just 
what I'm doing, just what is there. So let's try that shift again. Okay, flat that time. So now I'm going to see if I can figure out, uh, analyze how to do it better. Okay, still too sharp. Try it again. I think that uh, if I prepare the shift a little sooner by raising my arm before I go up the cello, I'll maybe have a better chance of controlling the exact moment that I stop. Let's try that very slowly. Prepare. Okay, that gives me a better chance of controlling it. Let's try it again. So as I play the low note, I give my, myself the intention, raising the elbow, preparing the hand, and then lightening up with the finger and bringing it down securely when I hit the note. At the same time, in order to not get that scratchy sound, when I, I realized, I observed, my bow was getting too close to the bridge, to this part over here as I was moving the bow, which gets the scratchy sound. So I give myself the intention, keep the bow in the same place while you raise the elbow and lighten the finger to prepare the shift. So in my practice, I slow the process down and I kind of deconstruct what are the elements that are going to get me to feel very secure on that shift. Now I'm going to play the passage that that comes in. Uh, there's a piece called The Prayer by the American composer Ernest Bloch. And uh, this, that particular shift comes at a very dramatic moment. I'll play that passage for you. Okay, here's the shift. see when the shift comes it's not a moment when I want to be thinking uh-oh am I gonna make it or not it's a moment that I want to be feeling completely <laughs> sure in what I'm doing and I just want to focus on the intensity and the drama of that particular moment and so in order to do that I have to uh, figure out in my practice and repeat enough times so that the mental intentions of preparing the shift and keeping the bow in exactly the right spot have become kind of automatic. They've become my habits. Um, let me play another passage that will be a very good example of this. In that piece that I played, the prelude, uh, in the first few minutes, there's a passage towards the end of it that has a very complex uh, bow technique, which we call string crossing, going back and forth from one string to another. And if the passage goes like this. And so what I'm doing, if I just played the bow without any fingers down, um, it would be going like this. Going very fast from the D string to the A string. And that's called string crossing. Um, and 
That's a very kind of difficult and complicated motion to control at exactly the right speed. And let's say when I was first learning the passage, it was probably very hard for me to control that back and forth motion. And it probably sounded something like this when I first tried to do it. Till I was trying to figure out a way to play it with exactly the right amount of evenness and smoothness and control. So I had to figure out, first of all, what motion am I going to use for that string crossing? Perhaps uh, I could just pivot my shoulder back and forth. And in trying it that way, I could see right away that that's going to make me really tired because it's a way bigger motion than I have to do, especially when I play it at the speed that the piece calls for. So, well, let's try something else. Uh, what about if I moved my wrist back up and down? If I slow the motion down, and observe very carefully, I can see that I'm just flapping my wrist back and forth. And I can see that that's going to be very hard to control at a fast tempo. And it's actually more motion than is needed to make that small curve from the D string to the A string. So how about if I just try pivoting my fingers back and forth, as little as motion as possible? to get from one string to the other. Okay, I can see that's going to be a better way to approach it. But if I just pivot the fingers, then it sounds a little bit choppy. It's not quite smoothly connected from one bow change to the other. So I realize that I need to keep my shoulder moving very freely back and forth while I pivot the fingers. And I also need to keep my wrist loose so that the pivoting of the fingers causes a little tiny bit of motion in the wrist as well. So if I feel very, very deeply within my physical body, I can be aware of the pivoting of the fingers, the lack of tension in the wrist, and the motion of the shoulder going back and forth. So okay, I've got this down pretty good. I also have to make sure to be pressing just enough with the finger so that I don't get a whistle sound on that A string, but really just enough pressure to make the string uh, articulated at the beginning of the note. So now that I have it down at a slow tempo, I get my friend, my trusty uh, analog device from a previous century, my metronome. Now, we all have them now. Uh, apps on our cell phones, but I like the old-fashioned, so this is the metronome, and it establishes a nice steady beat. So in my practice, I'll start kind of slowly. Okay, all right, I can do it in a very controlled way. Let's see if I can, I'll speed up the practice days for you here. So now let's go quite a bit faster. Uh, 
so what I'm feeling, I can do it in the right tempo, but I'm blocking my shoulder a little bit and not allowing the notes to stay perfectly connected. So I might have to slow it down a little and give myself the very specific intention, keep the shoulder motion. So this process continues until I get it into the right tempo with the metronome. And now that's the bow, that's just the right hand. Now we come to coordinating with the left hand. And so what I notice is that um, the notes on the lower string, the D string, keep changing and the a string stays the same. So while I'm playing the open A string, I have to be already planning and preparing the next note that's going to change. Because if I wait too long, then it's going to sound like this. And you'll get these unpleasant slides, which were definitely not stylistic in the Baroque era. So in order to coordinate the left and right hands in this passage, I give myself the very specific intention. As I'm playing the open A string, prepare, prepare the next note, prepare the next one, next note, shift, backward, shift, D, backward, Next note. So while I'm playing the open A, I'm mentally preparing and getting ready for the note that follows it. Okay, so then once I have that at a very slow tempo, I'll put my metronome friend on again. As I play that, I'm observing what is it that isn't coming out exactly the way that I want. And I find sometimes I'm uh, failing to really articulate the A string, so you get that kind of whistle sound. Gee, I thought I'd already practiced that, darn. Um, so back to the observation again. And so now I have to reanalyze what is it that's causing that to happen. And I think that I'm releasing the pressure on my bow too much as I go to the A string. So again, I have to slow the process down and give myself the very conscious intention of pressing just a little bit more with this finger as I go to the A string. So these are some of the things that I have to think about uh, in practicing that one passage. But this is what I would call technical practice. So this uh, kind of practice just allows me to sort of implement the notes on the page, to play the notes that Bach wrote. And the next level of practice is to play the meaning underneath the notes. So that comes under the domain of what I call interpretation. And so I have to 
study this music of Bach and think about what do I think the composer is trying to convey in that particular passage and how am I going to manifest that uh, emotion and those musical ideas in the way that I play. Um, So in order to do that, I need to sort of study the music because uh, very often composers write instructions in their music for us, for the performers, so we know what they had in mind. Sometimes they write uh, dynamics, which is loud and soft. They'll write certain symbols to crescendo, get louder or to get softer. They'll write expressive markings like dolce, sweetly, or animato, get faster. Usually they write in Italian, even Bach did. Um, But in Bach's music, and most of the music of the 18th century, he didn't write a lot of markings. In fact, if I showed you the score to this prelude, you would see exactly zero instructions for the musician. No dynamics, no crescendos, no uh, expressive suggestions. So, um, therefore, it's up to each performer to make a lot of those decisions about how do I think uh, I can convey what, to me, Bach is trying to say. And so part of that is studying the music of that period, of knowing what the conventions were. And the reason that Bach didn't have to write so many instructions was there were a lot of conventions in the 18th century that everybody kind of knew certain things meant certain things. Um, So let's just look at that particular passage that I just played for you. Um, So I'm going to play it two different ways. First way, I'm going to play it exactly just the notes on the page without any interpretation. And then I'll play it adding what I think of as how I think uh, the music will best bring out the meaning underneath the notes, and then I'll tell you why I do that. Okay, so this is the first way. To the best of my ability, just the notes on the page. trying to do it perfectly evenly and exact. Now this would be adding an interpretation. Could you hear the difference between the two ways? And so... um, why I played it this particular way that I do, which I consider my interpretation, and if you listen to other cellists, other recordings, you'll have a lot of different interpretations of that particular passage and of the whole suite, which is one of the wonderful things about uh, playing classical music with, uh, for, throughout your life, whether you're a professional or an amateur. There's always more to look at and understand and learn about the music that, of these great composers. Um, and every time I go back to this prelude and think about it, I have new thoughts about it, and I might play it a little bit differently. But what I think about that particular passage, um, I look at where it takes place in the movement, and I know that 
Bach is on his way trying to take you back home to this home key of G major. He's trying to get there. He's sort of searching for a high G. And he starts kind of going up and then doesn't quite find it and comes back. And then goes up a little more and can't quite find it and come back. So the melody is going... So he goes up as far as he can and he can't quite find it and so he kind of comes back again. And I also know that the passage right after this one, the very next measure, is the one that he really builds up to that high G, because after that comes... And then he finally gets back to that high G. So in the passage that I played the two different ways, he's sort of trying to find it, not quite getting there. And so I'm trying to convey the idea of, of, of looking for something and you can't quite find it, and getting a little closer and you can't quite get it, and then saving the real build-up for the next measure when he really goes all the way and makes it to that high G. So this, this earlier passage is sort of like the, the fake build-up. It's the build-up to the real build-up. And so how do I convey that, uh, what I think Bach is trying to say? And so... What I've decided to do in that passage is um, kind of go up and down with the melodic line, with my own, with the intensity of pressure and of bow speed and the amount of bow. These are the different variables that I have to work with. So in my practice of that passage, uh, I will first work out the, as you saw before, the coordination and the exact motion. Um, and the way that I want to play that piece just to implement the notes on the page with the metronome, getting it into the right tempo. And then I'm also actually simultaneously thinking about what is the meaning underneath those notes and how can I vary that line so it really gives the effect of building up. doesn't quite get there, he comes back to the quiet place. So I can uh, play with the elements of time, stretching a few notes a little bit more, speeding up a tiny bit, slowing down a tiny bit. Um, not too much, because if we do a lot of that, then you get out of the realm of what we would consider Baroque interpretation, and you might be playing uh, in the style of Schumann or Brahms. So these are some of the elements that I think about uh, in terms of deconstructing my own practice. Um, so in order to prepare a piece for performance, I mean, that, that what I just showed you uh, is things I might practice that take maybe 40 seconds of music. So in order to get an entire piece ready for public performance, I will spend many, many hours alone in a room with just my cello and my own awareness. And that's what I call practice. Um, so that's cello practice, and how that relates to meditation practice for me uh, is another story. So I had been playing the cello since I was eight, and I didn't come to meditation until I was close to 30 years old. Up to that point, I'd never meditated. I had no relationship to Buddhism or meditation. I didn't know anything about it, and I started dating a guy who uh, was very interested in meditation, had done a lot of retreats, and had thought a great deal about 
of the practice of Buddhism and Dharma. In fact, that was the guy Sylvia mentioned earlier, Cliff Saron, who I'm now my husband of 26 years. And um, he kept trying to convince me back in our dating years to do a retreat with him. And uh, if any of you know Cliff, you know he's a very persuasive guy. In fact, I know that he's been in this class with Sylvia uh, recruiting some of you to be subjects in his experiments on meditation. He now is a researcher at UC Davis and uh, does research on the effects on the brain and well-being of intensive meditation. Um, So when he first was convincing me to do this, he said, let's take this winter break and we'll, um, we'll greet the new year at this meditation center in western Massachusetts. And what we'll do is we'll sit on these little floor cushions for eight or ten hours a day. And then sometimes we'll get up and we'll walk very slowly back and forth across the room. And um, you'll sleep in a tiny little dorm room. I'll see you at mealtimes, but we won't be able to talk because we're going to be in silence for ten days. And my first reaction was, um, you know, Hawaii is very nice this time of year. And I promised to bring a little cushion to sit on the beach for a few hours a day. Um, But he did convince me to go do this winter meditation retreat for 10 days. Uh, And I was also curious. I wanted to see what I could possibly get out of it. And since it was something so important to him, I thought I'd give it a try. And so I went to um, Insight Meditation Center in Massachusetts. And the first thing that I noticed at the first meditation, this was taught by Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein. And right away, the instructions sounded vaguely familiar to me. They said, be aware of your body on the cushion, your feet on the floor. Listen deeply to the sounds around you. Follow the flow of your breath. And as you quiet your mind, cultivate a non-judgmental, neutral awareness of just what is present. In the walking meditation, they told us to be aware of the shift of weight in our bodies as we listened to the arising in our mind of the thought of taking a step and very slowly moving your heel and your foot off the floor and being aware of each part of the foot as it makes contact with the floor. And then after a few days, the light bulb went off, and I thought, well, gee, isn't that just what I do when I sit down to practice the cello? And uh, over these years, since that first retreat, which was quite a while ago now, I have done many other retreats and have deepened my own meditation practice. And the more uh, deeply I become aware of my mind, my body, Uh, my thoughts, my listening, the more uh, it helps my cello playing and has helped me become a more conscious practicer. Um, I can tell you one story about after I had done a retreat here at Spirit Rock a few years ago, and if any of you have done retreats, you know that um, being in a retreat can really change your way that you are in the world when you come out in ways that you don't expect. And there was one retreat where I had to go right from uh, the retreat to a rehearsal with the San Francisco Symphony at Davies Hall. And so I had Giovanni with me in his case the whole 10 days. Of course, uh, 
it was in the case, I couldn't play because it was a silent retreat, but he was in the corner. And then the retreat ended Saturday morning. We usually have Saturday morning rehearsals the symphony, so I figured I better get there a little early. I should warm up at least an hour before rehearsal. I hadn't touched the cello for over a week. So re retreat ended. I walked down to the car, put the cello in, drove to Davies Hall. And uh, at Symphony Hall, we have some practice rooms down in the basement. So I got there early. No one was there. I went down to the practice room. Still hadn't spoken to anybody for all the time I was on the retreat, and um, took out the cello, and I thought, well, I'll you know, warm up, practice my part. And so I started tuning, just the four strings. And I just kept tuning and tuning for 30 minutes. And usually it takes 30 seconds to tune the four strings. I only have four. And my listening awareness had so deepened during that retreat that I couldn't bring myself to do any more than just tune and listen to the exactness of those perfect fifths and feel uh, how carefully I was drawing the bow across the string and every single muscle in the body and how I was using my feet and my fingers. And you can imagine I barely was able to play a few passages before I had to go to rehearsal. And, um, and then also during the rehearsal and for quite a long time after that, I was listening very differently to the music, and I was able to uh, really feel in a deeper way what the composer was trying to convey. And Cynthia, Cynthia and I, uh, Sylvia, that's your name. We have talked about this because she comes to the symphony quite a bit, and we've talked a lot about listening and how uh, meditation can really deepen your listening awareness, which I definitely feel that it has for me. Um, so in closing, I'm going to play another piece, another movement uh, from this box suite. And this is going to be the Sarabond from the same suite in G major. And you may not be familiar with the Sarabond, but uh, in the 18th century, everybody knew that a Sarabond was a slow uh, movement in three-quarter time, a slow stately dance in 3-4. And normally, uh, a dance in 3-4, like a waltz or a minuet, will have a very strong downbeat, like a one, two, three. One, two, three. Um, but a sarabande has a stress on the second beat, like a one, two, three, one, two, three, uh, which makes it feel a little bit um, sort of uncomfortable, like you can't quite find the downbeat. And when you're dancing it as well, uh, it's difficult to maintain the pattern of the rhythm. And Bach plays with that idea. So he gives you a very enigmatic melody. And... Um, if you're trying to sort of tap your foot along or play metronome along with it, you'll have a difficult time because the melody is quite meandering. And then finally at the end, you start to feel the three-quarter rhythm again. Um, so uh, just like after the prelude, when the sarabande is over, let's just allow the music to fade into silence. And then Sylvia will give you some reflections about practice.
a few times as you were playing, I thought I, I, in the middle of enjoying and everything else that I was doing, I thought to myself, how can I work things out so at some point we have an opportunity to applaud? Because there's a, there's a didn't you have that feeling? I mean, when, when there's so much delight in the mind, you want to say, I'm delighted. You know, is this one of the times, okay, I'm delighted. I'm really delighted. <laughs> Don't you feel better now? <laughs> Honestly, you sit in the symphony hall and you think, if they don't stop soon and let these people get up and, and applaud. Because you feel so delighted and you feel like conveying that back. And there's something about... Um, there's something that I was thinking about just in these last few days about how there's a feedback loop. I mean, with, with all the practicing and the getting it right and getting it right and getting it right, part of the delight I'm sure that you take is in, is in being able to make this kind of music, but also in being able to delight other people. You feel good when people burst out, don't you? Yes, you do. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and I, I think it's like, and uh, I said this to you just the other day because it hadn't occurred to me before, that uh, if I think about the, the, the point of practicing uh, working with the mind, it's not to become a good meditator, and it's definitely not to become a good breather or a pulmonologist. Or, uh, I, mean, I, I actually think it's uh, the, the, more, the, the more traditional name of practice is the purification of the heart. And I love that. I mean, what we're doing is purifying the heart so that uh, our, our natural good heart mm-hmm. that could ring out mm-hmm. goodwill and care and consolation and mm-hmm. look at the world and have the twin feelings of appreciation. world is amazing. Look at all this stuff. To be here in February on retreat, every day in February, if you look at the, a certain bush, or any bush, but many, that are just bare in the winter. We don't have so many bare bushes in the winter in California, but you look at those that are bare, you see that the bud is getting ready. And every day you watch it, and it's a little bigger, a little bigger, and then it opens. You know, it brings delight to the mind. And you want to applaud the bush for doing its <laughs> right thing. And I, I think that there's a... Well, we, you do, because I think there's a part in us that's ready to applaud. I mean, if somebody throws a put a touchdown pass into the end zone under, you know, uh, all kinds of extreme pressure, I'd love to watch that the camera at the game goes immediately to that player's mother. <laughs> so, I mean, not only is she delighted, but she drove him to football practice every day. <laughs> so that shared delight in the perfection of practice is a really extraordinary thing and in 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 oneself uh, if your practice uh, among your practices is the practice of the purification of the heart then what you do beam out when you meet people on a level of uh, being present to them is I'm present to you which is the largest gift that you can give to anybody I'm really paying attention to you and people are delighted and then they beam back to you I see you're really interested in me. And then you feel good because that resonance loop is set up. 
And then you want to be more the kind of person that can be available to other people. It's really, we, when you think about, so what's the goal of meditation? What would enlightened be? I'm not sure. But I think that it would manifest as being able to be here now with what's ever happening fully in the gift of full presence, of full attention, is the best consoling gift that we can give to anyone. I told somebody recently, I don't remember even the context, and it just came into my mind right now that when I went off to college, my mother said, you know, when you meet people, when you meet new people, Sylvia, be sure to ask them what they're interested in. And, uh, and then whatever they tell you that they're interested in, be really interested in it. Uh, people will love you for it. And it didn't, seem, it, 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 it didn't seem to be an instruction that was going to be self-serving for me. She said, uh, but don't fake it. She said, you have to really mean it. And that was a great piece of instruction. And my mother really operated that way. And my mother had, and people loved her, you know, because she was available for them. So that was her, her instruction, be present. Because where would you be? I mean, where could you be but now? You are here now. You know what I was thinking about when I was thinking about the, the, the experience of uh, listening to music? And for most people, I figured the people who are here today who are normally here and the people who have come extra are people who probably were interested in Barbara and the music. Because music is lovely. It's one of the delights in life, you know. It's like when you see a high jump player, a, runner, a high jumper, and somehow with that pole they managed to jump over that or they managed to do a triple lutz. When anybody does anything that took years and years and years and years and hours of parents driving them <laughs> to places and them doing it every day, and as a human being doing that, you think that's amazing. Uh, the, the pianist that played with the symphony a few weeks ago, you had the feeling that he and the piano were not separate. As a matter of fact, you didn't have a feeling that he was playing the piano. You had the feeling that music was happening, and coincidentally, he was sitting on the piano bench in front of it. You don't always have that feeling, but you know that music was happening, um, and you get excited about it because when you're when you're in that sort of a situation where you realize there's no one playing but music is present, then you're not there either. You know that you have fallen into that spell of forgetting yourself. And there's nothing there but music. So I was thinking about <clears throat> there are ways to listen and ways to listen because many people will say, well, music is soothing. Sometimes it is. Not always, you know. Uh, <laughs> last week was a particular, I, I can't even remember. There were two modern pieces, modern 20th pieces century. Where if you were going to be foolish, you would say that everybody's got a score, but it looks like it probably says play at random, anything you feel like. But it, it, but it doesn't sound like that. It doesn't sound like random playing. I mean, you listen to it, it's very, it, you can follow it. But you really have to listen. And if you really listen, the double delight for me to listen to music is not only is it uh, gratifying in itself, but while you're really listening... It's like really being with your breath or really being with your steps or really being with any particular one focus. And all your stories about 
He insulted me. He said something bad. I wonder if I'm going to get that job. Is my child's marriage going to work out? Did my grandson have a measles vaccine? Whatever it is <laughs> that you think about in the spare time that's in your mind goes away. You don't think about it. I'm sure you don't think about it while you're playing. And you definitely don't think about it if you're really listening. And if I go to listen to music of any kind, and I'm listening, and it's amazing to me because my mind is not in a good place. If I really have been stirred up about something or I'm really concerned about something, or something's made me distressed, you can go and listen, and for a while you're right there and paying attention, paying attention, like with the breath, with the breath, with the breath. And all of a sudden, you realize everyone's applauding, and you miss the last 10 minutes. And you were sitting there, and you weren't asleep, and your eyes were open. And the whole drama of, is my child's marriage going to work out? Does this person really love me? Is the job okay? Did I get that email? Is unfolding. And then you think, how could I have done that? I mean, I've missed that. Everybody certainly enjoyed it a lot. That's a last. Too bad about that. But you know how it is. You sit on your pillow. And you're really right here, right here, right here, right here. All of a sudden, not right here for a long period of time. Say, how did that happen? And who was watching? One of the things that I think over time gets better, which I was watching as you were showing about practicing how to get better, how to get better, is the clue, I'm not okay, comes earlier. You know, I'm not here. I was watching you slide up that octave. The clue, I'm not here, is comes earlier. Most, mostly because you don't feel well. If I'm, sitting, if I'm sitting on a retreat or if I'm anywhere and my mind starts to uh, accidentally, comes to, a, comes to a, a, a um, fork in the road that says, this leads to peace, some thought comes up in my mind, a potentially upsetting thought. And come to a fork, that is a fork in the road because you could dwell on the upsetting thought and who said that before and that you told them a million times not to say that. (laughs) Or you could say, you know, my mind just got stirred up. Stir up just rose up in my mind. I better correct that and go on this other road to peace Mm -hmm. because eventually it will get tired this way and I will have wasted a lot of time. And you notice, fork in the road, don't do it, come here. That fork in the road is actually in the Eightfold Path. It's the sixth, uh, the, depending how you list them. But it goes with the three mind training um, aspects of the Eightfold Path, which are wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. We talk a lot about wise mindfulness and wise concentration because they're easy to, they're easier, I think, to uh, to give instructions for being with recognizing moments as they arise with a non-coercive mind that says, hmm, this is happening, okay, hmm, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. If you do enough, this is happening, and this is happening with a non-coercive mind, then what happens is you develop a certain amount of concentration, and a certain amount of concentration, just from not jumping all over the place in the mind. The concentration is being augmented by mindfulness, the, the deepening concentration or the augmented concentration is then like ballast in the boat of the mind. And it's less apt to get startled as much and less apt to get coercive. Do you know what the, the coercive mind is? Something happens and you're going along. Let me think of something like... Um, mm, 
what could happen if the mind suddenly, oh, maybe you're on the freeway, you're going, so you're going to your dentist appointment, and suddenly, for some reason that you hadn't anticipated, there's too much, there's a lot of traffic on the freeway, you're going to be late for the dentist, you've been waiting for this appointment, your tooth hurts, and all of a sudden you're stuck, and the mind says, ah, look at this. And so there's a moment of startle, and followed by, I knew I should have left earlier. That was so stupid of me not to leave then. I mean, I've been waiting for three months for this appointment, and I've been really worried because I think something is out of whack with my mouth. I wonder if this isn't something, maybe I need a root canal. Oh, but if I go on a root canal now, then I'll be late. Well, but maybe it will be, it'll be worse than a root canal. It could be this, it could be that. Meantime, the traffic is the same, and you've stirred up the whole mind with it. You're not gonna get there any faster from that. And the other fork in the road is, Ah, there's a lot of traffic here. Wow, that just startled me. Well, uh, I guess I'm, I'm actually probably startled because I'm really eager to be at the dentist on time. But uh, I can't go faster than I'm going. And I'll get there sometime. And probably she'll take care of me when I get there. And uh, I'll wait. I'll, you know, I can cancel this afternoon. It'll be all, all, all right. This happens. As a matter of fact, look at all these other people in the cars around me. Maybe they have places to go that are equally important. Maybe they're all stirred up. Maybe I could send them some goodwill now. May you all relax in your cars. After all, my getting there safe is depending on all these people. As a matter of fact, I'm alive in this car because all those people haven't bashed into me yet. So thank you, all the people in the cars. May you be well. You are all of you keeping me alive at this moment. May you be peaceful. May you be happy. May you be free of suffering. There's a better thing to do at that point. And the clue for am I off key is that that would be, I sound wrong, would be I feel wrong. Because here I am driving along, feeling da-da-da, everything comfortable, all of a sudden not comfortable, and then it's all that chatter of maybe this, maybe that, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and your body gets like this. You say, wait a minute, I'm off key here. Something's not right. What's not right? I'm plotting, I have this whole imaginary thing. Relax. The wisdom comes in in that moment. You say, relax. Wisdom. Relax reinstates equanimity. Equanimity allows for wisdom to arise. The wisdom is, I'll get there when I get there. That's the wisdom. And I can't do anything about it. And I might as well relax about it. Mm -hmm. And I'll feel happier if I'm wishing well to all the people in all the cars. Because I will always feel well if I'm wishing happier. That actually is the, the clue for everything. In the moment that I'm not happy, if I could think about other people, I am happier. Number one, I took the spotlight off myself, who wasn't happy. And look at other people, and then think about them and get interested in them. The people I've known over the years who have managed until the last minute, approaching their, their last breath, to be saying, wait, call, call uh, the, I, when I used to live in Cincinnati, there was a guy next door to me, here's his phone number, call him, see how he is, Tell him I said goodbye to him. I didn't get a chance to call him. Tell this. My, my, my nephew in, uh, in uh, Philadelphia, I'd like to call him. Can you bring me a phone number so I could call him? The people who were interested in somebody else till the last minute lived the whole of their lives. They lived up to the time that they left the life. They didn't get all absorbed in themselves. Mm -hmm. I think that the other people in this world are our saviors. They're what keeping us alive. We have to establish, the, well, no, I have to, I sound like a preacher. When I establish, it's really important to not preach, for me anyway. 
when I establish, uh, in my experience, when I establish <laughs> bonds of resonant feedback with people, I feel happy in my life, whether I'm performing something or giving a talk or doing a teaching or checking out of the supermarket or going to the dentist or driving my car or anything else. And I think when people say, what do you practice? I say, you know, I've been practicing uh, Dharma for almost 40 years. They say, what do you practice? I'm practicing keeping my mind clear and my heart open because I think that that's what the goal is. That's what I'd like to do. Because if my mind was clear, my heart would be open. I would be in contact with everyone. And the best of me would come out. You know, however it is, we each of us, we're not all going to be cellists, but we're all people. And we can all play that song of, I'm in a feedback loop with you, and I care about you, and I'm interested in you. Everybody can sing that particular song, even not in the key. <laughs> so I, 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 I just wanted to say that I, I didn't write down. I had this little play in my mind as you were explaining. I thought, oh, there's another parallel, there's another parallel, there's another parallel. So I thought, reach for the pencil, write down the parallels, but then I would have missed the next one. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what you remember, you'll remember, that's all. Mm -hmm. What did you notice as, that you wanted to ask as a parallel or something that you noticed or as a comment that you like to make? There you go. Now, who is our monitor to bring the... Uh, Marty is the monitor. Okay. It was working, Marty, so just turn it on. There you go. Thank you, Barbara. I was always wondering how you keep your ears so alive and attentive when you're surrounded by the cacophony of the orchestra. Um, well, playing in an orchestra is a very particular skill, and it does take some time to, to gain all of the different uh, important elements of that. Um, so I've been playing in orchestras for a long time, since youth orchestras, since elementary school. And you do get used to, first of all, you're listening to the people around you, because <clears throat> I play in a section of sometimes 8, 10, 11 cellists. And so the first thing you're listening for is blending your own sound with the other cellists because we're all playing the same music. So we want to have a blended sound. You don't want to stick out. And then at the same time, you're listening to the other voices. There are times when the cellos have something exactly along with the violins or maybe along with the bassoons. So you do get used to um, listening to everything that's going on around you. And one of the most wonderful things for me about playing in a great orchestra like the San Francisco Symphony, we usually will repeat one concert four times in a week, the same program. And so uh, by the second, third, fourth performances, or when we go on tour, you'll be performing the same program seven, eight, nine, ten times. Uh, as you get more and more familiar, it's just wonderful to listen to the whole orchestra and hear different voices that you never were aware of before. So you can always be you know, deepening your own awareness of what's going on around you. And uh, it is something that you get used to listening to yourself, listening to your blending colleagues, and listening to the whole bigger orchestra, if that answers your question. Thank you. Uh, yes, thank you very much. Hold it close. Um, I'm wondering, um, 
this whole technique or whatever you want to call it of practice and how to be aware of it um, when did you start that were you were any of your teachers uh, aware of that enough to pass it on to you and at what age as a young child that would have been very difficult I'm sure but did you have teachers who were able to pass that on to you, or did you have to figure that out? Good question. Um, well, I think it's, a, it's probably both. How I deconstructed practice for you into the four components, that's something that I've thought about and I've figured out for myself just by observing what I do. But, and I think that every professional musician does uh, really a very close version of that. They may not be able to articulate, this is what I'm doing, I'm observing, analyzing, altering, but that is basically how we practice with consciousness, with awareness. Uh, that's how all of us practice. Um, and sometimes our teachers explain that to us, but usually it's something that we pick up from the teacher will do it, you'll listen, you'll try to do it, Sometimes they'll tell you what to do. They'll do the analysis. And in my teaching, uh, I do I analyze what my students are doing that's holding them back. And I tell them, you know, raise this, do that, not so much tension here, less this, more that. Um, because I, over the years, have developed sort of my own method of, of explaining and of teaching. Um, so for a period of time, that's the teacher's job to do that. And then... Uh, as we get closer to professional level, we start to kind of um, internalize all of the teaching that we've had. I studied with actually many different teachers after I left the Juilliard School. So it's a combination of things that people have taught me, how to deconstruct practice, and then through my own um, greater understanding, through thinking about meditation, uh, it's sort of crystallized a way to articulate it in, in um, sort of more defined ways, if that helps. Mm -hmm. Nancy's over there. <clears throat> yeah, I just find myself kind of pondering, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you talked about the need to anticipate moving to the next node. Yes. And at the same time talking about staying in the present. Yes. And I'm just working on trying to tease out, it feels mm. like there's a very delicate balance of moving ahead and staying present at the same time. That, that is true. And um, this, I don't know how much sense it'll make if I say that sometimes the, the staying present is the moving ahead. Because in order to stay present with what I'm playing, part of the uh, process of that is planning exactly what I need to do next. So I do feel like when I'm really able to think about what I'm doing, that I am being present. Although um, in my most ideal performances, I'm not really even thinking about those things. It has become... Uh, so habitual and so automatic that I can just allow myself to become lost in the um, communication of what I think the composer is trying to say. And those are, for all of us, those are our best performances. You know what I was thinking actually on that point, Nancy, just uh, and uh, listening to Barbara's response, that I think in the understanding of what mindfulness is, a really mindful moment is really being able to, as, as fully as possible, grasp what is happening now. Um, and that, you know, is my mind changing it for me? Or 
I, I loved about your uh, non-judgmental, um, not clouding it up with opinions. Uh, it's so hard not to cloud up with opinions, uh, especially when people uh, have uh, if people. If, if it happens to medita meditators because they feel I knew better. I should have seen this. I saw my anger coming up. I should have not said anything. I knew that, but I didn't stop. My, anyway, so that to be able to say, you know, I knew it. And I did not, on the moment, have sufficient wherewithal not to respond anyway. Maybe the next time it'll be different intention. So to be able to do that in a, in a comforting way. But that the definition of mindfulness is really being able to say, hmm, this is what's happening, and uh, let's see what happens next, and what should I do now? That I, when, when you were saying, you know, that uh, uh, I deconstruct and I think, okay, what could I do? I think that we have been asking that question as human beings, what should I do now? Since we were uh, toddlers and our mothers put us down and we had to start doing things for ourselves, you know? You, you fall down and you think, you, you see a two-year-old or uh, an 18-month-old all of a sudden sits down ah, because it's just learning how to walk and it looks around to see where there's a chair to pull itself up. What should I do now? You know, you know you have to do something. So maybe you, you holler out the first thing, nothing happens, and you look, what should I do now? We've been asking ourselves, what should I do now? All of our lives, but often I think the difference is, is thinking about it, what should I do now? Which is what a moment of mindfulness allows you to do, as, as opposed to impulsively acting without thinking about it, uh, in which case we often, whether we're young or old, make some uh, sometimes uh, unhappy choices. choices. I think that the word choice is really important, Roberto, everybody. The word choice is really important. That uh, in, uh, in Dharma texts, they talk a lot about uh, uh, suffering or freedom. And freedom is often, you know, freedom what? I think about suffering and choice, that I can still make a choice of mind states to have, I can still say, and you know what? Here I am. I'll figure it out. You know that that there's a there's a there's always a mind state that's a peaceful response or peace filled. Mm. It might not be peaceful, but it, it it's not it's not filled with um, resentful intent. You know, you might have to. <laughs> I just thought simultaneously there are places when you have to say, no, don't do that. That's not a peaceful response. But it could be peace-filled. You say that to your children all the time. You mean them no harm, but you're serious about it. So anyway, what else do you want? Somebody had a thing. Uh, one of the things you didn't mention in practice, uh, a fundamental, is playing scales. And there are several ways to look at playing scales. One can think of them as boring, mechanical, repetitious stuff, or as the beginning of practice where you begin to tune your instrument and your body and your mind and everything for <coughs> what follows afterward. So I'm very curious, because I think every musician practices scales. It's inevitable. How you approach that and and how it leads you into the next section of your, uh, your practicing. Great question. Um, you know, the Dalai Lama has a book called The Universe in a Single Atom, and the musical corollary, corollary could be uh, The Universe in a Single Note. And um, there's a wonderful story about 
the great cellist Pablo Casals, uh, one of the towering musical figures of the 20th century. He was actually born in about 1874 and lived to 1972, so he had a very long uh, and productive musical life. And uh, I was uh, very fortunate to be, he, he uh, had a music festival every summer called the Casals Festival in Puerto Rico in San Juan. And uh, one summer I was invited to play at that festival. It was after Casals had died. He was, um, had been there for many, many years. But uh, the year I went, I was just out of Juilliard and a lot of the people who were still playing in the Casals Festival Orchestra had worked with him. And so they uh, told wonderful stories about him. And one of, actually my favorite story about Casals was that he was giving a master class. And uh, one of the students said, Maestro, what is the most difficult thing about playing the cello? And they thought students would think, oh, he's going to pick some incredibly difficult piece, uh, fingered octaves, some uh, etude that just goes super fast. What what is he going to say? And so he said, the most difficult thing about playing the cello is finding where to put my first finger every morning when I start to play. And so for him, the, the universe in a single note, just one note, perfectly balanced, perfectly in tune, just the right amount of pressure, not too much tension, the most beautiful sound. Um, so this is a way of answering slightly roundabout your question about scales. I start every day practicing with just one note before I even do a scale, just whatever note comes to mind. Of and just so back and forth. Feeling my bow across the string, feeling the smoothness of the changes, making corrections just to my sound, to my vibrato, varying it, and then I'll switch and do it on a different finger and a different note. And this goes on for a while. And then after I feel like I'm feeling centered and listening very deeply, then I'll start a scale. And uh, a scales are great. You know what a scale is just sort of every note in order. <laughs> C major and you can keep going. You can keep going. So that's a C major scale, four octaves. Um, normally I'll play it very, very slowly, very slowly, many times, up and down, just getting my vibrato centered, practicing the shifts, uh, seeing where I am today. But just like with a meditation practice, you start exactly where you are, wherever that might be. Maybe one morning I'll feel like I have a lot of tension in my shoulder or my, my wrist isn't moving smoothly and my vibrato is too fast or too slow, and I'll work with that for a while with scales. Scales are, are wonderful because you don't have to worry about what note's coming next or uh, what position am I in or what my rhythm is. You can do any rhythm, any tempo, uh, just one note after the next, changing carefully from one finger to the next. And scales come in uh, you know, 12 different keys, so you can pick any key, and that will take you all up and down the instrument covering you know, all of the notes that we have to play. So uh, I think we generally think of kids starting with scales and playing them in a very rote kind of way, up and down, back and forth. And it, it, we think of scales as, you say, very boring and very tedious and no, no fun to do. Um, uh, for, with my teaching, 
I only have students do scales if it's something that's relating to uh, how they're playing and thinking about one particular thing or a special rhythm or uh, changing from one note to another so that instead of just going by rote, you're working on one very specific thing. So scales can be extremely valuable, but I think if they're done in a very conscious way. Listen, I have a thought. We have three minutes. And I'm trying to figure out a way that will legitimately allow everybody to leap to their feet and applaud. So you could either play the prelude again or you could play the jig. Um, would you like to hear the prelude again? Sure. Okay. All right. So uh, now that you've seen it deconstructed and you have a sense of how I'm thinking of it in terms of the structure of it, what Bach had in mind, and you know all about practicing, how many years it's taken me to figure out how to play this piece now. Uh, we'll have the prelude in G major one more time. Oops.
so not an ordinary Wednesday morning. Thank you so much for coming. I feel tremendously gifted. I'm very glad you were all able to be here. It gives me particular pleasure to be able to share with you my friends when I know that they will bring you so much joy and delight and really edification about how to think about these kinds of things. So may you be well, and I will see those of you who I see here in a regular way uh, on the last Wednesday in February here again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.